Morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? Before we get started, I have a little bit of family business to share with you. Many of you know uh, our friend Tom Harrison and his wife Kathy and his daughters. And we've been praying for uh, Tom for a while now. Uh, He's been fighting pancreatic cancer. Um, And we found out yesterday that uh, Tom is... uh, transitioning over to hospice <clears throat> uh, beginning, to, uh, beginning last night. Uh, so we want to just pause and take a moment and pray for Tom and his family uh, at, in this time. So would you join me in prayer? <clears throat> Gracious God, we thank you uh, that you are the author and the giver of life, and we know that uh, in each person uh, you have given us life and you've given us purpose. And we thank you for Tom's life. We thank you for uh, what he has meant to us, what he has meant to his family, for his service and and his mission in the world for you. And God, we know that in the times of our darkest hour, we cry out to you and ask you to be with us, to give us comfort and to give us peace, to give us hope. And knowing that you are Lord, regardless of the circumstance and the condition of our life. So God, I pray in these next, um, this next step and stage in Tom's time here on earth, uh, that it would be a gift to Kathy, uh, that it would be a gift to Lauren and to Sarah and to the rest of their family as they prepare for Tom's time with you. I pray that you keep the pain uh, that Tom may be enduring at bay. And I pray for uh, the gift of those final words and the opportunity to share as Tom transitions. God, help us to celebrate his life in knowing that this is not the end, but this is only the, the beginning where Tom gets to be with you for eternity. And thank you that we get to celebrate that and celebrate his life and what he has meant to each of us. Yet be with us in our pain, and be with us in our sorrow, and knowing that uh, you bring joy in the morning. So we trust that to you today. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Have you ever blown it? I'm not talking about something like the time where you bought your wife a vacuum for your wedding anniversary, or maybe the time that you blew 80% of your monthly budget at Target and had to come home and explain to your spouse who was trying to balance your checkbook. I'm talking about really blowing it. The kind of blowing it where you have been exposed. Perhaps you broke the law in some way. You stole something or had a DUI. Or you were caught in some kind of lie, or, or you were caught cheating, or some kind of an extramarital affair. Or maybe you're carrying uh, some guilt and shame, you're living with an addiction of drugs and alcohol, or some sort of a sexual addiction, porn, or, or, or gambling. Or maybe you blew it just hurting someone really bad. In order to protect yourself, you threw someone else under the bus or you abandoned someone for your own personal agenda. Or maybe in some way, shape, or form beyond that, you just dishonored God. 
and your character and your integrity is, has been called into question. You're aware of the distance between you and God because of something you have done. And you just can't seem to get, on back, get back on track with God. However you may have blown it, at some point it forces us to ask, how do I ever get past this? How do I make things right? Can I be forgiven? You may be asking, how can I ever face God again with what I've done? Would God really forgive me? If you find yourself relating to these questions in some way, you are in the right place today. We're working through a series called Changed by Grace, and we're looking at the concept of grace and how grace changes us. One of the goals of this series is to help all of us know and, and to understand that grace is not simply a one-time transaction in our life, but it's a life-changing process of receiving, and we live in the gift of this unmerited favor of God even when we have blown it. Now, there may not be anyone else better in Scripture to illustrate this than the life of the Apostle Peter. For those who may not be aware, Peter is not some fictional character in the Bible. Peter, who was originally named Simon, was a real person who met Jesus early on in, in Jesus' ministry. Simon was a fisherman, and from what we gather... He was most likely a middle-class, blue-collar worker. Fishing wasn't easy, but Simon made a pretty decent living doing it. One morning after working all night, the Bible tells the story of Simon meeting Jesus on the shore as Jesus was teaching a large crowd of people. And Jesus jumped into Simon's boat on the edge of the water, and he tells Simon to throw out his nets for a catch. Reluctantly, Simon does this, and the result was miraculous. So many fish filled the boat that it had begun to sink. Simon, realizing who Jesus was, fell down at Jesus' feet and calls him Lord. And Jesus tells Simon that he would be a fisher of men from that moment on. Now, Simon was one of the first of Jesus' chosen disciples who traveled with Jesus wherever he went. I mean, for three years, Jesus taught Simon. He, he cared for Simon. He gave him responsibility. He let him rise up into the ranks. Simon was one of the few who Jesus told certain things to that he didn't tell others. Jesus had a very high trust in Simon. In all of this time, Simon was learning more and more about who Jesus was and in the process, he's being changed by God's grace. And there was a point in time when Jesus tells Simon that he would be the foundation of the church. Jesus changed his name to, from Simon to Peter, which meant rock. Think with me for a minute about the level of trust and the respect and the love Jesus had for Peter to give this responsibility to him. Peter must have meant a great deal to Jesus. Think about the person that you trust most in this world. And this was the kind of trust and relationship between Jesus and with Peter. 
Fast forward three years later to the last night that Jesus was with his disciples before he was arrested. And Jesus was preparing his disciples for his impending departure. And Peter, with all the good intention, tells Jesus that he would follow him wherever he would go. He said, I would die for you. Think about that. The faith and the love and the trust that Peter had for Jesus in that moment that he was willing to go where Jesus was going, even if it meant death. What a commitment. What love. What loyalty. But Jesus knew what was coming for him, and he knew that Peter would not be going with him because he could not handle it. Jesus tells Peter that he would deny him three times by the next morning. And shortly after, Jesus is arrested. Here's what we read what happens in John verses 18. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was, known to, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You're one of that man's disciples too, aren't you? She asked. He replied, I am not. Peter starts feeling the pressure here. He's trying to be with Jesus, and someone sees him and calls him out. They ask if Peter is one of Jesus' disciples, and this is Peter's first denial. Let's read on. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of those disciples too, are you? And he denied it again. He said, I am not. The second denial. Finally, one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. The third denial. Now, to Peter's credit, there was really nothing he was able to do in the situation to save Jesus. Jesus' arrest, his crucifixion, his death and resurrection was the plan all along. That was not going to change. Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who took the penalty for sin and death so that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Nobody was going to stop that. But what Peter did do was in a moment of fear where he could have risked himself being put in prison or, or maybe even face crucifixion himself, he chose to disassociate himself from Jesus. Other gospel accounts tell us that Peter said, I never even knew the man. I would swear on my life that I, would ne that I never knew him. Now, in that moment, I would suspect that Peter never felt as exposed and empty and full of guilt than he did at that moment. Maybe he realized that he just lost everything. He lost a friend, a savior, his purpose, and perhaps even his future. Peter had blown it, and in that moment, it seemed like it was irreparable. What happened? 
How did Peter go from Jesus being Jesus' rock to a flop? One of the concepts that we talk about in TLFA are the, um, uh, the leadership formation adventure. That's our leadership de- program development here. Is what's called relational congruence. In his book, Canoeing the Mountains, Todd Bolsinger defines relational congruence as the ability to be fundamentally the same person with the same values in every relationship, in every circumstance, and every crisis. We often see relational incongruence all around us. I mean, I'll just go for the low-hanging fruit. I mean, you know, you, you know the people that will, you know, say one thing and do something here, but then they go over here and they say something and do something totally different? I think they're called politicians. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. (laughs) Relational congruence is the eternal capacity to keep promises to God, to self and to one's relationships that consistently express one's identity and values in spiritually and emotionally healthy ways. We develop relational congruence the more we learn to live in our true self. In our, in our true self, we are living as who God created us to be. The true self lives in harmony with God and his purposes. In our true self, we are grounded in God's love and his truth and his ways. We desire to live in the true self and in all of our relationships and situations in life. In Peter's life, as an example, his true self was the moments when Jesus produced the miraculous catch of fish. And Peter knew at that moment that it was God. It was the Lord. It was the moment that Jesus appointed Peter to be the rock on which he would build his church. It was the last night that with Jesus, with Peter, and Peter was saying, I'm willing to follow you even if it meant death. Those were the times that Peter is living in his true self. Of course, the alternative to living in our true self is living in our false self. In our false self, we are living life decentered from God's purpose for who we are created to be. In our false self, we seek to put up defenses. We protect ourselves. We live in fear. Our need for control is heightened. We do everything we can to, be, be, to avoid being exposed as a fake, a fraud, a failure, incompetent, or guilty. Our false self harbors our secrets and our sinful thoughts and our actions. And in Peter's life, the false self was triggered when he was being called out for being with Jesus. Seeing the danger of the situation, possibly being arrested or more in that moment, fearing what might have happened, Peter denies knowing Jesus to protect himself. Peter had blown it. And when he realized what he did, it ruined him. Internally. In one of the other accounts of Peter's denial, it says that Jesus went away and wept bitterly. 
Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not talking about this true self, false self idea to normalize or justify Peter's situation or ours. It's a pathway to better understand why and how we blow it. The Bible tells us that there's two fundamental ways that we operate in the world. We can either trust our human resources and our abilities, or we trust in God. We choose to either trust God's way, which promises life, or we can go our own way and roll the dice and ultimately leads to disaster and death. The Bible tells us that when we do things our own way without God, that's the definition of sin. Without God, we are in effect saying, I don't need God's ways. I know what is right and wrong. I choose my own destiny. Ultimately, this is a heart condition. But when we follow Jesus, he makes our heart new. It's a new beginning. It's a new birth, free of charge to us. That's grace, but very costly to Jesus. That's grace. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. When we follow Jesus, we learn to live in the true self. We become relationally congruent in our relationships and we put off our false self. We identify the things in our life that are not of God and we learn to live without them and put them aside. This is not just an automatic process. It takes the deeper work of prayer and reflection and awareness and learning to be led by the Holy Spirit to guide you in living your true self. Christy mentioned the class 201, Becoming Like Jesus, that we're offering next Sunday. And I would encourage you, if you have not taken that, and you're, you're learning to walk more closely with God and deeper with God, 201 is a great class to learn that. How do we become more like Jesus? If you're contemplating that today, don't miss that opportunity. There will be times in your life where you will blow it, and you may blow it in a major way. Have you ever thought what we tend to do when we've blown it? We often retreat. We hide. We, we, we seek to get away from whatever has exposed us. Perhaps we hide from our guilt and shame, but we often hide from the fear of what people will think of us. Maybe we wonder and we get stuck in the idea of how could I ever come back from what I've done? Maybe these were some of the questions that Peter was wrestling with after he denied Jesus three times. Sin causes us to run and to hide. But God's grace seeks to find us. In the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree in Genesis 3, it says that their eyes were open and they felt shame at their nakedness and they tried to cover themselves up with leaves. So here they are hiding. But you want to know what God was doing? 
it tells us is that when it tells us that when they heard God coming, they hid. But God's first question to Adam and Eve was what? Not what you've done, but where are you? Where are you? Where are you? God seeks after us when we are lost. After Jesus had been crucified, Peter went back to his old life of fishing. He retreated. Maybe he felt like it was all he could do at this point. To go back on the water, to get in his boat, to be by himself and, and, and do what only he could do. But guess what Jesus did? At a moment when Jesus had every right to think, I don't ever want to see that loser Peter again. He didn't. Jesus went back to Peter's old life to find him. Once again, like the first time Peter met Jesus, Peter had been fishing all night with the other disciples and they hadn't caught a thing. And Jesus was on the shoreline while they're out in the water and Jesus calls out to them, have you caught anything? And and the disciples not knowing who that was, they simply responded, no. Jesus says, well, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. See what happens. They had nothing better to do, so they throw the nets on the other side of the boat. And when they do, they haul another miraculous catch of fish. And realizing who the person was who had called out to them, one of the disciples yell out, it's the Lord. And Peter, in his excitement, jumps out of the boat into the water and he swims all the way on the shore to go meet Jesus. And when he got there, Jesus had breakfast waiting for him. And it was a reconnection, an opportunity for Jesus and Peter to be together once again. Here's what John 21 says about that interaction. It says, when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this point, Peter's hurt because Jesus asked him a third time. And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Of all the things that Jesus could have said and done here, Jesus extends grace. What does this interaction between Jesus and Peter tell us about grace when you and I have blown it? Let me share three things with you very quickly. First, God's grace can forgive you. We live in a world of records. Records of wrongs, records of what someone said, record of who owes us, records of someone's past, records that could destroy us if exposed at just the right time. 
God doesn't hold on to what we have done. The only record that God holds on to is our name. Think about it for a minute. As one of his children, when we blow it, God extends forgiveness. We confess it and it is forgiven. Done. It's over. It's never thought of again in the mind of God. Psalm 103 tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far he has moved, removed our transgressions from us. Forgiveness erases the wrong, but it also should erase our own guilt and shame with the freedom of being able to move forward with God again. Grace is not given because of what we have done or not done, but by who loves us. And the love of God never fails. God's grace can forgive you. God's grace can also restore you. God's grace puts us back into right relationships with God and with others. We begin to see again who we are in our true self. God's grace restores us to be able to continue to follow Jesus freely. Grace restores our joy in our relationships once again. In Peter's case, Jesus picked up right where they left off, preparing and instructing Peter for his future. Jesus said, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. If you were to read on in the Bible into the book of Acts, Peter was a force to be reckoned with. Jesus restored Peter back to his position as the bedrock of the church. And Peter was never denying Jesus that moment, after that moment. When you read through the book of Acts, he was probably one of the boldest evangelists that we, that we will learn and hear about in the history of the world. Now, I want to provide a word of caution here because when we talk about restoration, it does not necessarily mean free of consequences. We may have blown it in such a way that we may owe a debt to society, and we have to repay that. It may mean the consequence of losing a job or losing a license or, or maybe a marriage, depending on the, on the damage that's been done, or some sort of a business partnership. Restoration is about restoring right relationships with God and with others. Things and circumstances may not go back exactly as they once were, but the goal of restoration is restoring relationship, bringing relationships back that were once broken and separated and distant. So God's grace can forgive us. God's grace can restore us. But here's the kicker. Here's the thing that's most important for us to hear today. God wants our heart. God wants our heart. What was Jesus getting at by asking three times if Peter loved him? Some say, you know, it was symbolic of the other three times that Peter denied knowing him. In his book, Navigating Tough Texts, Murray James Harris points out the idea of first things. 
See, when we blow it with God, when we blow it with others, it's our, it's our doing. God did not do that to us. We have strayed from God. We have moved away from the relationships that we have. We have messed up. We lost our focus, our priorities. And most importantly, we lost our commitment to love. To love God, love ourselves and others. But what Jesus is asking Peter here is that, are you all in? Do I have your heart? Am I first in your life? Do you love me or not? Do you want to be in a relationship with me or not? Will you put, your, will you put me first in your life? Do I have your heart? Jesus was looking to establish the first things in Peter's life to make sure that Jesus was the priority Jesus was the focus, and Jesus was the priority in his life. Notice the first time that Jesus asked Peter if he loved Jesus, he said, do you love me more than these? Now, while there have been a couple interpretations in history of what these are, I find it fitting that these are the fish that are represented of the miraculous catch in the menu of breakfast with Jesus. Why? It was indicative of Peter going back to his old life and old priorities. And Jesus is asking, am I first in your life? In other words, do you love me more than you love these? Are you going to just fish or are you going to follow me? <clears throat> When God is not first in our life, everything else is out of order. And that is when we lose the sight of God. 26 years ago, when Jamie and I got married, the pastor who married us challenged us with the order of priorities in our life. He built it right into his message. He said, in your life, your priorities are God. Then your spouse then your kids, then your job, and then everything else. See, when we get those priorities out of whack, when we put kids above our spouse or kids above God or, 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 or our job above God, everything comes out of order. But when we think about that order of God first, spouse, kids, job, everything else. This is what Jesus is getting at by challenging us, challenging Peter to put first things first. Here's the big idea for today. Grace frees us from guilt and shame and restores our relationship with Jesus when we have blown it. Friends, God is at work in us every single day. And there are days and there are, and there are, are moments that we're going to make mistakes. It's not about being perfect. But it's about knowing who is perfect and who can heal us and restore us and bring about transformation, grace, and change in our life. 
We don't stand, have to stand before God condemned. We don't stand before God as someone who's wronged, who's, been, who's done wrong. We can stand before God as forgiven, as restored, as we give him our heart and continue to follow him. Does God have your heart? Maybe you're here this morning and or maybe this is one of your first times joining us online or in the room. And that's a question that God asks each and every one of us. Does God have your heart? Are you holding on to something that has kept you at bay, distant away from God? A time where you have blown it or a time that you have you know you're, you're, you're struggling with God and you just can't figure out the path and the way back. Grace frees us from guilt and shame and restores our relationship with Jesus when we have blown it. It may not be something colossal. This week I was at a retreat with some other pastors and we were uh, spending some quiet time and and I was thinking about this message and just thinking about some of my own life. And God started to open up some things in my life that I've, where I've blown it. Nothing colossal. You're not going to hear some major scandal in my life this morning. But what you will hear is times where I struggle loving people. I struggle loving people when, and when they have wronged me. And I will hold them in contempt a lot longer than Jesus holds me in contempt. And it was an opportunity for me to think, wow, if God wants my heart, I need to be all in. And friends, God wants you to be all in. So I'd like to give you an opportunity that maybe today you've been holding on to something for a little while now. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to respond. As you walked in this morning, you received a pen and <clears throat> one of these hearts. And maybe we will just have a little bit of a time of reflection here where there might be something in your life that you need to give back over to God. God is saying, I want your heart, but there's something in the way. Maybe you'll take that pen and just write down what that is. One word, one thought. Or maybe you've never, you're here today and you've never given your heart over to God. Maybe you would just write your name on that heart. Or maybe there's a sin in your life that you need to hand over to God so you can follow him freely. Write that down on your heart. And there's no obligation here. But if God is moving you, there's an opportunity to come forward in a moment here where you can take that heart and you can lay it at the foot of Jesus, at the cross. Because the cross symbolizes what God died for, what Jesus died for, for you. For that forgiveness, for that restoration, for that healing. But we have to give him our heart. So let me give you a moment to be by yourself, maybe to bow your head think about what that thing is that you would put on your heart. And if you'd like, 
after you've been there for a moment, come on up and put that, put that heart right on the foot of Jesus. the significance of what is happening here. See, all of these things represent the old life, our, our false self, the things that keep us from God. Yet in this moment where God is at work, he's revealing the true self in us, the desire to want to follow him freely. That is God's grace. That is God at work in your life. Don't miss that moment. If you're online and you're watching this this morning, I just want to give you an opportunity that you can participate in this as well. Grab a piece of paper at your house or your home or wherever you're watching us. Maybe write down your name or your thing. And maybe you burn that or flush it down the toilet later on. But it symbolizes laying down the things that keep us from God and taking up the cross and following Jesus stand for a final prayer. God, I pray for each person who laid something at the cross today that you would sustain them and give them strength and give them the courage and the ability to continue to follow you and to move forward with you today. For those that made first-time decisions of giving their heart over to you, 
God, I pray that you would help them to experience new joy, new beginning, and new hope. God, for those that maybe didn't fill out a heart for reasons of fear or not ready, not just there yet. God, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself, help them to ask the questions, to seek and to knock and to find you. And in that time, you'll make that right with them. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. David and the team are going to finish with a final song, and uh, we'll have a couple deacons and some staff up here praying with you at the end. If you'd like to come up for a prayer, we'd be happy to pray with you. Let's continue on in the service. Close to your side, so hey.